Even though what I'm going to talk about now might be quite theoretical, I will explain the following jhanas, the higher meditative absorption, in order to show the whole pathway which is possible and also to explain why it is necessary to try for concentration that becomes quite one-pointed. On the other hand, it is also quite necessary to know that the Buddha said in one of his discourses that one can become enlightened after any of the jhanas because any of them will soothe and calm the mind so that there isn't the churning of the thought and emotion. But from experience, one can say without any doubt that the first jhanas, especially the first two, still have excitement in them and the mind does not become calm enough and is not detached enough to do what is necessary in order to let go of the whole conglomeration of mind and body. So we can really say that from the third jhana on, which I have already explained, and then of course the fourth one, which I have um, discussed, the mind does become calm. The first two, there is uh, delight and joy, which is somewhat exciting. And the simile which I gave you also brought that out quite clearly. The one of the person that's looking for water. Now the fourth one, being extremely concentrated and having very little of the observer in it becomes the springboard for the next ones. Now the next are again four and they're called the Arupa Jhanas which means the immaterial meditative absorption. So the word itself denotes something that we can look at in this way. The first ones were the fine material, which means that we have a certain materiality in them. We have something that we experience which is not totally unknown. We do know delightful sensations, we know joy, we also know contentment, and we also know sometimes some deep peacefulness but nothing in the order of the jhanas but it isn't totally unknown the steps that the mind goes to now are unknown to anyone who hasn't been there with the mind they are on an immaterial plane they are elevated states of consciousness which are inaccessible without the meditative path. 
it is possible to have an accidental touch on them but even that is extremely rare so one could say as a general statement without much um, difficulty that they are inaccessible without meditation and again inaccessible without concentrative meditation they bring us to states of consciousness which are totally other than what we know otherwise and for that reason alone already having experienced these other states of consciousness we know without a shadow of a doubt that the consciousness that we operate under in everyday life is totally unsatisfactory the, uh, the consciousness which we use in everyday life cannot be satisfying for the simple reason that it is steeped in duality constantly we're always concerned with what we like and what we don't like what we buy and what we sell what we have and what we haven't got which is what is yours and what is mine what is theirs and what is ours in that kind of duality we can't find the complete peacefulness and the complete fulfillment that everybody is basically looking for with the a proviso that most people don't know where to look which is obvious because this is within and not without one might also mention at this point and it might be of interest that all mystics of all ages of all traditions Christian, Buddhist or otherwise have gone along this pathway there is no other the Christian mystics which are quite interesting to read such as Meister Eckhart, Teresa de Villa, Jakob Böhme, Hildegard von Bingen there are some um, more than that the most interesting ones would be Teresa de Villa and um, also John of the Cross have all gone along this pathway but have used of course Christian terminology but I tell you a secret it's not an important one the description of the mansion with the chambers I have taken from Teresa de Villa she had seven chambers we've got eight and in those chambers she was very visual and in those chambers she saw the most magnificent decorations of jewels and um, um, silver and gold and shining light and met the bridegroom and first was distant from him and then later on had the unification which obviously is Jesus Christ so this is her description but anyone who has done the jhanas can read within that exactly the same thing we're doing it's obvious the human mind can only do certain things and all human minds can do certain things and for to, in order to reach higher states and higher levels of consciousness that is the path now in her case Teresa de Villa is the one that I have um, studied most 
And that's why I'm using her as the example. In her case, it was utter devotion and also enormous dukkha that brought her there. There was no insight. But the devotion and the dukkha brought her along that pathway. Now, we are actually a little more fortunate. We have the instructions, which she didn't have. She did it on her own and taught her nuns. And if you are interested in that, the book that she wrote about it, where she taught her nuns, is called The Interior Castle. It's instructions to her nuns about her own experiences and again it doesn't exactly say how to do it it just says that she did it but it is interesting from a standpoint for those people who do and experience the elevated states of consciousness because of the fact that all minds who are interested in spirituality go along that way there are many more examples. Meister Eckhart also went along that way. His writing is much more difficult to understand, so I'm not recommending it. Um, he wrote in Old German, which even we don't understand anymore. It has to be translated into New German. It is translated into English. It is fascinatingly interesting, but it is difficult. But if you're interested in that, that too shows the same pathway. But the wording is even more difficult to find that he has done it. I did give a, a lecture um, entitled Meister Eckhart Meets the Buddha in uh, Oxford in England at the Meister Eckhart Society and um, showed the um, exact parallels. It wasn't too well received. <laughs> <laughs> I found it interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so now that we come to the higher jhanas, the elevated states of consciousness, it is really um, quite important to realize that they are available to any human mind and bring with them enormous insight. That's why they're also called the Vipassana jhanas, the inside jhanas, and also called the Arupa jhanas, the immaterial jhanas. Rupa body, A is a syllable for non, the non-body jhanas, which does not mean that we get out of our bodies. We stay right where we are. The first one of these has a certain parallel to the very first jhana. The very first jhana is physical, delightful sensation. Now the fifth one is not physical, delightful sensation, but it does start with the body. It has that um, aspect that we can go, we don't have to, but in the beginning it's a very good beginning. We can go to the outlines of the body which at that time are diffuse because we've come out of the fourth jhana where we haven't felt the body and 
At that time, having come out, the outlines of the body are diffuse, but still, using them as a starting point, we can use them in order to expand. And they do. They don't, that's not a deliberate thing, it just seems to have a very natural inclination to do that. So there's an expansion. This expansion can already be felt in the lower jhanas, but not to the extent that what happens in the fifth one. There's this expansion which doesn't stop and goes on and on and on. Now in the Buddha's instructions, he actually mentions at one stage that what could, could go from the body to the village and leave that behind, to the forest and leave that behind, to the earth and leave that behind, to the sky and leave that behind, and come to an infinity of space. And that's all he says about how to get there. So everything else one has to actually experience. However, from experience, the uh, most significant aspect that we can use in order to expand the mind, and this is an expansion of mind. Obviously, it's not an expansion of body. Body remains exactly the same as it always been, and so does the sky. It always remains the same. But from the mind expansion, the most significant points are the diffuse outline of the body, which lifts and expands to the point where it may get stopped. And the next point is sky and limitlessness, being limitless. Now the mind has to be not only concentrated, that's obviously uh, one of the prerequisites, but also having sat down on the pillow without any obstruction. There cannot be any worries or problems in the mind. There cannot be any ideas what one would like to get and what one would like to have, what one would like to be. Nothing of the sort. In order to expand the mind to its limitless spaciousness, there can't be anything like that in it. That's why the lower jhanas are essential, because they clear out, as I've explained to you, the hindrances, at least for the time of the meditation so that we have all the automatic antidotes in the lower jhanas against our hindrances, so that when the mind has been cleared of them, that it can actually expand. Now, in order to get to the lower jhanas, the prerequisite is also to sit down with as few or none of the obstructions. So it's always catch-22. We want to get it, but we've got to have it. And the more we look at our mental and emotional states in daily life, outside of meditation, and let go, the easier it is to meditate. The easier it is to expand the mind. A mind that wants something, a mind that has ideas about itself, is contracted. Why? Because it is concerned with me. And how big is me in this universe? You can't even see it. It's so tiny. 
it's even not correct to say it's like a grain of sand. It's less than that. So as long as we are constantly concerned with me, the mind will not expand. But when me is not of the utmost importance, and that's where the devotion comes in, particularly what I was telling you about Teresa de Villa, because she was devoting herself to unifying, which what for her was the highest idea. And this is what I mentioned to you also, that without the love aspect of giving oneself totally to the highest idea, having faith, trust and devotion, it doesn't really work. If there's a slightest skeptical doubt, let me see whether that really works. That doesn't work. It just won't. And with the mind says, well, maybe yes and maybe no, it's guaranteed to be no. You can have a written guarantee for that. It's got to be a total giving. Only the mind that is totally free of any of that will be able to expand to its fullest. And that's what it does in the fifth jhana. It expands to the fullest spaciousness. It's called the infinity of space. That's a name for that one. Now with that name, one may, if one is visually inclined, visualize something. Whatever we visualize, that's not it because the visualization is also limited by that which we can make up. It's got to be experienced. Now the visualization, and some people are very visual, is a help. People who are very visual are helped by that, because at least they can have an inner picture of what that could be like. And then having that inner picture using that in order to let the mind follow it but it has to be experienced in order to know it one has to experience it and as one experiences it there is a very distinct insight which is not the last yet but it is something which is so important that the mind no longer has to wiggle around this business of no self. The idea of this no self, which I um, talked about last night, is often so foreign to the ordinary mind that either it becomes a total obstacle, a total rejection, and the mind says, well, it's all right, I'll meditate a bit, but no self, no, I don't have anything to do with that. It's about as foreign to, or more foreign to most people than reincarnation. Who wants to have any reliability on rebirth that's also rejected out of hand or with um, skepticism? And this no self has about the same kind of reaction in most people's minds that haven't really heard, read, and tried enough of the teaching. Once one has gone to the fifth jhana, that is no longer necessary to even think about it. 
because at the time of infinity of space one experiences it one doesn't experience giving up self that's a totally different story we'll come to that on the inside path but one experiences the fact that within this enormousness to which the mind has expanded there's nobody that is can be found there is no personal body that can be found because if there is a personal body within all that obviously it's not the infinity of space it's again the contracted mind having reference to self so that experience brings the mind to an understanding of the reality of a totality in the universe which is not dependent upon separate bodies separate bodies which means me because all the other separate bodies they have to do it themselves don't they one is particularly concerned about this me and this experience changes one's outlook it changes the perspective the perspective however needs to be resurrected the same as i was saying last night or at some stage if one has learned a foreign language and never speaks it it goes into the background of the um, of the mind and is sort of on hold but it's difficult after a long time to bring it out again although it's there one can't quite bring it out that's why one has to speak the language of dhamma day in and day out and i don't mean words that's too a good thing to do but i don't mean one has to talk about it the language of dhamma is the way one looks at things the more we look at things at life at all our situations that they are me and mine and my and that they should comply with our wishes the less we have the dhamma language at heart the more we reconsider the experience we may have had in any of the concentrated states of meditation or any insights which may have come to us the more we keep those in mind the more the dhamma language is in our heart and remains in our heart and the more we can do that the more we are able to keep that going it is at this point in time for everyone still a foreign language because the world doesn't speak that language the world speaks a language of me and mine and the world speaks a language of competition and of achievement and a language quite often of enmity and aggression because one wants and another person wants the same so that language is a foreign language in the world and so we have to be the ones if we have seen it understood it and actually experienced it 
we have the ones to speak it to ourselves. That's why it's helpful to be a monk or a nun, because that's the language you're supposed to speak to yourself. And it doesn't mean you've got to sit there and talk about it all the time. If you have somebody to talk to, of course, it's great. Talk to somebody that lives with you about the Dhamma. Recognize everything in the way of Dhamma. It's very helpful. But not everybody has somebody uh, living with them. And not everybody has somebody who is really steeped in it. But we can talk about it to ourselves. We see something that's happening and we don't want it. So we look at it and we say, that needs equanimity, not that needs rejection. When we have the experience of spaciousness, which means absolute and infinite space, and not just the word spaciousness, which is so often written in books, spaciousness in the mind, I've often wondered, what does it mean? They're not talking about the fifth jhana. What are they talking about? And I don't mean anything other than this experience of absolute and infinite space, where it is quite clear to the experiencer, and the experiencer and observer has actually come back quite um, strongly, much more strongly than in the fourth jhana. And that experience then needs to be remembered and resurrected in the mind even when one does not sit in meditation because it is such a significant point where all of a sudden there is this experience without anybody there. Obviously there is somebody that knows it but it is under all circumstances quite clear that the knowing is also in enormous space and that is the next jhana the sixth one now just as the first one and the second one have reference to each other and are cause and effect actually they're all cause and effect but first and second are very strongly connected because the joy arises at the same time that the uh, delightful sensation arises and so by dropping the delightful sensation of the first, we can use the joy for the second jhana. The same happens in fifth and sixth. The consciousness which can experience infinity of space has to be infinite consciousness. It cannot be limited consciousness. It's got to be infinite. So by dropping the experience of this space, we obviously have left over the infinity of consciousness. And that is the sixth jhana, which is even more significant and full of impact for insight. The observer is there, but the observer too is infinite, because otherwise it can't know. There is the consciousness, which in this case is also, we can say, is awareness. And it is all-embracing. There is no limit to it. 
And this is the experience which is often in the Hindu tradition described as Tattvamasi, I am that. Because that is I and I am also that. And Meister Eckhart described it as actually there is nothing other than I because God is I and I am God. And he almost got burned at the stake for that. But he had some influential friends. And otherwise he wouldn't even have his writings. Because if the consciousness is all embracing, and we know through the Buddha's teachings it's got nothing to do with God, it's consciousness. It appears to be that it's all-knowing. It appears to be that it's omniscient. It appears to be that it's everything, all-pervading. It isn't really omniscient. It isn't really all-knowing. The Buddha was asked about that. It's all-pervading, yes. There's no limit to it. But what does it pervade? Again, within that unlimited consciousness, which embraces that unlimited space, there is nothing other than consciousness. There is not. There aren't trees and people and ants and uh, kangaroos, nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's just consciousness. So again, this impact of this particular experience brings an insight which is quite clearly other than anything that we can dream up through logical thinking. And therefore, this is the third dimension. It's neither logical nor is it abstract. It's experiential. And that's the beauty of the Buddha's teaching. It's experiential. But one's got to sit down and do it. Nobody else will do it for one. So, this unlimited consciousness shows one quite clearly that one doesn't have a personal consciousness. And the idea of personal mind disappears. <laughs> now in the first instance, in the spaciousness, the idea of personal body disappeared. And I'm quite deliberately saying idea. It isn't a giving up of it yet. And I want to make that quite clear. I've already said it once, but I'm going to say it again. Because there's a great difference between the knowing and the doing. But here we know. We actually know. So in that spaciousness, which is materiality, it's, of course, so subtle materiality that we don't consider it that, but it is that. There's no body, no body, two words. Within that unlimited consciousness, there is no personal mind or personal consciousness. Now, that experience can never be denied again. We know from that moment on, even if we don't ever do anything more than that, and there's plenty more to be done, that the idea of personal mind is strictly um, fantasy. And we no longer believe personal mind in all its aspects. We try to connect to that infinite consciousness 
as much as possible. Now, not everybody can do that, but everybody who experiences six jhana tries to connect to infinite consciousness so that the mistakes of personal mind are not made as much and as often. People sometimes call this intuition. It's not the right word and it's not the right thing. It's, li- it's more than that. Intuition is also something valuable. But it still operates on personal mind. I'm having intuition. This infinite consciousness, the connection to that, no longer operates on personal mind, on the idea of personal mind. There isn't any anyway, but it's the idea of it. It's trying to make that connection as much as possible, under particularly under stressful circumstances, and they are no longer stressful. Because in infinite, infinity of consciousness, there's no stress. There's just consciousness. Consciousness also means, in this case, awareness. The word consciousness, unfortunately, in Pali, has just one expression and means several different things. We have sense consciousness, which is the first step of the four parts of mind. We have rebirth consciousness, which is when the rebirth of a person takes, of a being takes place, not necessarily a person. And we here have the infinity of consciousness. So we have these are three totally different things. So in this case, we could use the word awareness, but it is not quite embracing enough. But it at least gives a bit more of an expression for it or an explanation for it. The result of having experienced both of these, namely the loss of body and the loss of, the loss of personal body and the loss of personal mind, brings with it a feeling of being connected. It doesn't bring Nibbana. That's a totally different uh, level yet. This is the third dimension. Past sense contact, above rational and abstract thinking, into the third dimension of experience. But Nibbana is the fourth dimension, and we'll come to that gradually, slowly little by little. So what we actually have is an experience which anyone who's had it tries to bring into daily living. Now that doesn't mean that we can experience infinity of consciousness, infinity of space while we walk around and think about things that need to be done. Or while one sits and writes a letter or why one answers the phone, or why one uh, earns one's living, or why one cleans one's house. That would be very unmindful. One needs to be mindful of that, what one is doing. But if there is any kind of decision to be made, that decision can always be, the mind that wants to make that decision can be expanded. Can be expanded so that it doesn't have to have personal wishes in it. The mind with personal wishes is contracted. It is concerned with that small grain of sand or less than grain of sand that's called me. So that kind of mind is very contracted. But 
the mind that wants to make a decision and connects to or tries to connect as much as possible to the infinity of consciousness expands and the personal wishes are no longer part of the decision making or the problem solving the problem solving and the decision making as long as it is concerned with personal wishes is never satisfactory it can't be because personal wishes do have no, no place in the infinity and universality and totality of existence personal wishes are just ideas and they're based on an enormous delusion they're based on this delusion that operates in the world that everybody is a personal entity the infinity of consciousness is therefore a very significant step one which changes the perspective the perspective which before would have been one uh, look at me I'm enjoying the jhanas and now can change very well it shouldn't have been look at me and I'm enjoying the jhanas but it could have been um, but now comes to the realization there's nobody there it's just all consciousness now when we realize this infinity of consciousness there's something else that is realized not only the connection with everything that we have which I've tried to um, show you also through the elements by using this method of using your own elements and flowing into the elements around you which helps to get there also into that feeling of totality but also we realize that whatever we have in mind contributes to the universality of consciousness and we become a little more careful about our mind I have already mentioned this and here it becomes a reality I have mentioned that we should be the guardians of our own mind that we should not allow anything to be in it that could be hurtful, detrimental, negative <coughs> and we know very well that we're hurting ourselves by having that but it's very often not enough to know that very often we actually need to be confronted with the fact that we're hurting others some people don't even care about that but anyone who is able to go into fifth and sixth jhana has refined their mind states to the point where this expansion is possible and then realizing that one's own consciousness is part and parcel of the whole thing then this guarding one's own mind becomes much more important the, con the infinity of consciousness contains everything and as it contains everything there is also no time element time and consciousness interact there is nothing separate there is nothing past, present, future there just is the whole thing and that's why we can actually contact that which is the most base and evil and we can contact that which is the highest 
and most refined. It's entirely up to us. And in that sixth jhana, all that is evident. Although we don't experience maybe the contact, what we experience is that there is no personal mind. It doesn't exist. It's been a misconception. We operate under thousands of misconceptions. I think I have mentioned a few dozen here already. They are, they are all based on the basic misconception that we're separate. Now I've tried to bring that into focus for you on levels which do not require a very strong concentration because to have one's foot touch the earth and realizing this is earth element and that's earth and to try and flow with it does not con require extremely strong concentration and yet can bring about just as air and breath can bring about a feeling of unity. These higher jhanas make this um, experience um, a fact, a reality. Just as we now have the reality of this is me and I want to get there. That doesn't, doesn't work. All we can do is sit nicely and quietly and concentrate and keep on concentrating. And again, one of the things which I have said and which now even make more sense maybe is the fact that don't stand apart from the meditation subject. Be it. Because there is nobody there that is really standing apart, that is observing it all. It's an infinity of observation. You don't have to be sitting there watching the breath. Be the breath. It's air. It's everywhere. And this trying to bring the observer and the observed together as much as possible makes the concentration in meditation possible. As long as one stands outside of the whole thing, one is only superficially engaged. And in, in reality, we can't stand outside. We are it. We are infinity of consciousness. We are infinity of space. We can't stand outside. There's nothing to stand. There's no nowhere. We always think, and I will talk about that on the inside steps, probably happening tonight. We always think there's something solid that we can hang on to. And if it should ever wobble, if it's an identity problem or anything like that, we get quite excited and, and fearful. But actually, the only thing that's keeping us sitting here is the law of gravity. In reality, the thing that we're sitting on is spinning, 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 spinning. There is, everything is like that. And so we're always grasping for straws to hang on. And we've been doing it so effectively this grasping for straws that we believe it. We believe the whole thing. And then we try to find little escape routes for this uh, solidity that we have established because it's very unpleasant. It's very contracted. It's always concerned with this ego. And we can realize after a while it doesn't work. It's not very nice. Um, it's just not happiness producing. So we look for escape routes. There aren't any. It's all the same thing. It's all spinning, spinning, spinning. It's all infinity of consciousness. It's all infinity of space. 
there aren't any escape routes. Only when one gets concentrated eventually and does that is all the rest of the movement and the falling apart of everything totally immaterial. It doesn't matter. Not because one has had such a nice meditation, you know, thinking, oh yes, I'm having nice meditation. It's nothing like that. Because the realization of those two steps, of the steps of this, this infinity, that realization brings with it that nothing that we can dream up, nothing that we can invent, nothing that we can get has any significance in the universal system of existence. Nothing. And the other thing is that when we come out of those jhanas, they too are impermanent. And so we know for a fact, and we can see that, the minute we open our eyes, the whole thing is gone. So we can know that they too are still part and parcel of the worldly condition. Although they are the third dimension, they're still within the worldly conditions because they're impermanent. We cannot walk around with infinity of space and infinity of consciousness while we have to look after this body that always needs looking after, while we have to earn a living, while we have to um, read a book. It's just not possible. So we can see that even though we have reached something, through our own concentration which puts a totally different light on everything that we've ever thought about because we've experienced something else it still is also not totally fulfilling and this is one of the things that the Buddha said about the jhanas that anyone who experiences them with real awareness will know that too in each jhana that too is not totally fulfilling. Experiencing that with full awareness means that we also deliberate go, deliberately go to the next one. That too is not totally fulfilling. And that keeps one on the path. Because each step that we do is more fulfilling than the one before. And yet we realize it's not totally fulfilling. But one has to keep at it. It's not something that one can do sort of um, once in a while. I always say to that, everybody eats every single day, probably three times a day, in order to keep this body alive and functioning. Well, one's got to meditate in order to keep the mind alive and functioning. If one doesn't do that, if one doesn't really use that as a necessity, the, the meditation, in order to see reality one day, then it's always just sort of a hobby. And um, a hobby one can lay aside if one wants to and then pick it up again. But that's not what this can possibly be, because none of these states of consciousness can be experienced if the mind is not completely um, trained so that the concentration is easy. You see, in the beginning it seems to be so difficult to concentrate. 
if one concentrates once or once and then continues to concentrate, it's quite simple. There's nothing difficult about it. The mind knows exactly where it has to go. Everything is lit up. It hasn't got all these dark corners anymore where it runs into uh, old uh, problems and ideas and hopes and plans and wishes. It's all lit up. It knows exactly the password. That's why, and I'll repeat that instruction because it's very important, that's why not only do we see at the end of each jhana, any one of them, that too is impermanent, but we also recapitulate the pathway we have taken. And that's why it is essential that in the beginning of the practice one goes step by step and doesn't jump around or think, oh, well, I can do number three, I don't have to do one and two. That's not useful. Step by step. Later on, when one becomes totally adept at it, has been doing it for years, one can do what is called sometimes playing with the jhanas. One can jump from one to seven, from seven to two, from three to eight, just for fun. Not really advisable at this point. This is just an exercise in mind control. How well the mind has been trained, that's all. Can it really do that? But at the point of practice, step by step, one after the other. Each one is the cause for the next one. The next one is the effect. The infinity of space and consciousness, as you have seen, are intrinsically bound up with each other and they are therefore having experienced the first one the space one the second one is obvious and will be experienced as the result of it the um, instructions at the end are the same again that too is impermanent recapitulating how did I get there and here in this case it's extremely important the third one what did I learn and the mind cannot help but see that there wasn't anybody doing it it's highly unlikely that a mind would react with saying look at me boy I'm really good at meditation it's highly unlikely anyone who can get that far wouldn't have that kind of reaction anymore because it's so egocentric that it would prevent one from getting there. The more we are concerned with our personal problems, the less we can meditate. It's obvious, either one or the other. We can't do both. The, uh, the instructions I've given for the mindfulness of one's mental state and of mindfulness of one's emotions and the substitution of the unwholesome with the wholesome may now make even more sense because if one doesn't do that the rest is all blocked there isn't any such experience one can think these things not very well but one can think them a little bit if one is visual but the experience is lacking and when one hasn't got the experience then the inner life doesn't change. One reacts to the things the same way one always has. 
because one doesn't see the totality of its being. Now the totality and unification of all that exists through those two is an enormous help for the love quality in the heart. Because once on compassion, once one has really experienced the fact that there isn't anybody separate from anybody else, then we don't have to be judge and jury anymore whom we love and whom we have compassion for. We have already, the heart quality has already been um, cultivated and realizing, experiencing that there is only one thing manifested in the world, then that love quality can go out to whatever there is. So this particular experience of the totality and of space, the totality of consciousness, makes this work of cultivating and developing the love quality in the heart possible so that it really comes to fruition because we don't see ourselves separated. We don't see ourselves actually as a personal being. So when one doesn't see oneself anymore as a personal being, then that's quite simple. And then it doesn't matter what other people do. Isn't that nice? When it doesn't matter anymore what other people do. It really doesn't matter. Because that too is all included in the totality and the infinity of space and consciousness. And if somebody is using their personal mind to the detriment of universal consciousness, one doesn't have to connect to it. One has a choice. Universal consciousness is everywhere. It's so vast. We don't have to connect to that which we know very well isn't going to make us happy, which we know very well is negative. So when these two experiences are are in meditation and are quite real as an experience, then the, what we have talked about, about our emotional factors within us and the four supreme emotions of love, compassion, joy with others and equanimity become reality. They are still, equanimity is still not at that point total, but it certainly is a far cry from what it's ever been before. The, the knowing of what there really is makes everything look different. The knowing what the optical illusion that we suffer from, that knowing that it's strictly an optical illusion, that makes life so much easier. Because we don't have to, even though the optical illusion remains, I mean there's still different people sitting there and there are houses and trees and everything, when one is without the meditation, but we don't have to react to that optical illusion by judging. 
and discriminating anymore. It doesn't mean that one when doesn't judge and doesn't discriminate, that one doesn't know what's wholesome and unwholesome. It doesn't mean that at all. One knows very well. But the quality of the heart has nothing to do with that. We don't like the crime, but we can still love the criminal. And that is probably the best expression that we can use in order to understand what it means not to be judge and jury. So the, these two experiences have an enormous impact and are therefore a great help on this path to liberation. Liberation means the end of dukkha, the end of all problems. It doesn't mean that the world all of a sudden has no more dukkha and no more problems. But I will explain this at some other time. It just means that the one who was having the dukkha is no more there. And that also doesn't mean being dead. But we will get to that eventually. At this point, I just want to explain these two steps of the um, meditative absorption. Now that might be enough. If you have questions, this is the time to ask them. No, not like that. The preceding jhana is seen as also not fulfilling so that the mind actually can go into a more subtle state. The preceding jhana has prepared the mind uh, so that it can actually do that. But in the first and second and in the fifth and sixth they are intrinsically connected. So you only drop one so you can go to the other. Number five, the, the sixth one arises and we only need to drop the infinity of the experience of the infinity of space in order to become aware of the infinity of consciousness. So it, it is like that, yes. yes. Number eight. We're at five and six. Yes. Sorry? Evil. Well, not doesn't come from infinite consciousness. Infinite consciousness contains everything and it depends what we connect to. You see, sometimes you can, people will connect to the fact that there are ghosts around and they get scared and, and they're worried and everything and another person doesn't have anything to do with that. Nothing. 
connects to the fact that there are devas around. Both are true. Just there. Everything is just there, including us. Yeah, unconscious. We have, uh, actually, we are quite opposite what Jung talks about. I'm going to have a Dickens of a time this weekend, because I'm going to give a talk to the Jung Society. (laughs) But I have nothing to do with the unconscious. He said, we've got so much trouble with the conscious, never mind the unconscious. It's called the Bhavanga. And he says, the Bhavanga is always there, which is the unconscious, but it needs a trigger. And he gives a... An example like this, he says, there's a person sitting under a mango tree, and uh, it's quite the person is quite unconscious. There's nothing happening, and then a mango falls on his head, and then all of a sudden he realizes all the things that the touch, contact, unpleasant feeling, gets angry at the mango tree. So the unconscious is something that the Buddha just left in the unconscious. The clearing up process is in the conscious. So I hope they don't ask me that. <laughs> yes. Some have, somehow have what? Yeah. Sure. Can one have those qualities? Yeah, if one can contact them, yes. Oh, that, that too is possible, certainly. It depends upon one's own purity. If there's no purity, one contacts more and more of the evil bits, and if one has a lot of purity, one contacts more and more of the good bits. You can leave the entirely out. <laughs> what protection is there? One's own purity. The only protection there is. No. The, uh, there is an access to that, that knowing. The knowing, the, re- the experience of it. But the impurity that people can have through their own uh, lack of um, stability within, that contacts automatically the impurity that is everywhere. So the birds of a feather flock together. It just works everywhere. So one's own purity is one's protection. No, wouldn't. And uh, in the in the Dhamma language, that's it's called the Dhamma protects the Dhamma practitioner. In other words, you've got to practice. You've got to actually do it. And then you protect it. That's right.
that's why you've got to do something also in daily life about them, about the hindrances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But because you do have that purification aspect in the jhanas, because at that time no hindrances arise, um, the mind has an automatic purification system there, but it isn't enough. Because when you come out, you've got to do something again. Not when one is wholesome. One can get them when one is unwholesome, yes. And the more unwholesome one gets, the more it, the worse it gets. It starts out as a physical feeling from the body, as if it was from the body going like that. It doesn't make a sound. <laughs> but then it stops being from the body and goes just into space. But it can. It starts out with that physical feeling, yes. Yes. No, you don't. I'll come to that. Uh, I'm at this point in time explaining the calm, the path of calm and tranquility, which goes along the jhana. And in the evenings I've been explaining the path of insight. And we haven't quite got to stream entry yet. So, wait. Okay? And you don't have to have fixed jhana, no. But it's much facilitated if you do. It's much easier. Yes. makes good karma for me to be able to share it. <laughs> yes. The other way around. Their path is calm and not inside. Yeah, but no without inside. <laughs> She had, not they used dukkha, they had enormous dukkha. The uh, Teresa de Avila had enormous dukkha and John of the Cross did too. Um, And that brought them to a point of total devotion and giving themselves totally to what was their highest ideal. They have no, there's no inside path there at all. It's strictly the calm and tranquility path. Altered consciousness is not insight. Everything I've talked about is a path of calm and tranquility. It does bring some insight if you have the instructions. We have the instructions of the Buddha to bring us the insight. It's the understood experience. But if you read the interior castle by Teresa de Avila, you will find that neither did she have any instructions at all. In those days, women were not instructed. They even took the books away from her. Um, because she couldn't read Latin, she could only read Spanish, and uh, so they took all the Spanish books away, so she couldn't look up anything up either, and um, so she did it all on her own, and inside is totally lacking. Mm-hmm. 
years. Yes, well, it's a path of tranquility. The, uh, the jhanas are the path of tranquility. And the, uh, the Christian mystics, the, I mean, Meister Eckhart had enormous insight. There was no, no lack of insight there, but he was a very uh, skilled scholar. And, uh, in fact, he was a very skilled teacher also. So um, he was not lacking in ed- education. He knew everything there was to be known about the scriptures. But he, and he had enormous insight. And probably I would say that from what I can understand, as much as I understand of it, he was enlightened. And, but he used both pathways. But uh, Teresa strictly used the pathway of devotion, giving herself fully, and resulted in the pathway of tranquility, which took her a long way, but she didn't see the implications. Anyway, that's the way I understand it. You can read it yourself, the interior castle, and see. But if the interior castle really becomes extremely interesting, I think, after one has done the jhanas, because then the mind says, ah, interesting. And then it's really interesting to read it. Anything else? Um, I have people who have uh, really potent near-death experience. Potent death experience. Yes, that can be very helpful. It can be very helpful to change their perspective. If they then start meditating, it might really do something for them. Mm-hmm. Most of them don't. <coughs> I, mean, I, I know one person who had it, and it is apparently really changed his life. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's an experience of seeing something other than what you see with your optical eye. But you don't have to have a near-death experience in order to see something other. You can sit down and concentrate. What they experience in their near-death experience? No idea. I haven't had one. I have no idea. I haven't had a near-death experience. I don't know what they experience. They, um, but it certainly changes their perspective, there's no doubt about it. Yes? Yes. 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 Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that is a part of the feeling you're saying. Yes, it does have that. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're quite right. Um, <laughs> when one gets very used to it, you know, it doesn't seem to be so prominent anymore. <laughs> but it's, you're quite right. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. Anything else? We've got a bit beyond the ordinary experience so we don't have so many questions about it but you can question other things you don't have to question the fifth and sixth jhana if you have any other question you can yes the first one to some extent yes depending if you want to yes some teachers want to, because they get a lot of disciples that way. <laughs> I, I do not think that this was what the Buddha did. 
and he does, never mentions it. Um, some teachers actually really do it. I heard of a situation right in Sydney where a teacher did that to a lot and lot of people. But you see, the the um, um, unsatisfactory part of this is that when they go home, they can't do it. They, they have to run after this teacher, wherever that teacher goes, in order to get it again. They can't do it. So in the Buddha's teaching, this is shunned. Um, the instructions are given. Sometimes, of course, because we have a controlled environment and we have a quiet situation, try to keep it as quiet as possible and infuse the situation with more concentration, it certainly helps. But it's got to be so well understood and so well practiced that one can take it home and keep on doing it. So this particular transmission, while it is very possible, uh, is not the right thing to do. It's, uh, it's uh, used in the, in the Hindu tradition, and uh, from what I know, maybe in others also, and the Buddha was not, never mentioned it, that he would do that. Anything else? Yes. Uh, yes, we'll get to that. <laughs> it doesn't dissolve, it doesn't come up new. Yes, I would assume, you know, I know very little about them. Um, I would assume that the Dharma transmission is that uh, you give authority to teach, but Shi Kuang knows about Zen. What's the Dharma transmission in Zen? Well, there's a little more in the sense that the authority to teach, I think it depends on the teacher and the student. Um, because sometimes they can receive transmission, but still not uh, the authority to teach. Mm. But there is a, a lineage power, which I would think is something to do with what you're talking about among the Janics. At least some level of Janics, mm. higher Janics, sort of intuitive power uh, aspect. That has been flavored or colored by a particular teaching or a particular style. Mm-hmm. And it does give you a connection with that teacher. So even if they're not, it's on an intuitive mm-hmm. connection. Uh, even if you're not presently with that teacher, there is something there that helps you keep in accord with that style of teaching. Mm. And you have a certain intuition which allows you, you know, where you have difficulties or problems, mm. to have that power of connection mm-hmm. to help you through those. But it's definitely in the Korean tradition, it's not necessarily one that allows you to see. Oh, I see. Two transmissions. One is where you have a transmission that says what you just said. It, it says basically you have passed a certain level of mm-hmm. understanding. And the other is actually the teacher disciple relationship. The relationship. Mm-hmm. And that might be done right, you know, to death of the teacher. And that teacher then allows his disciple to take over mm-hmm. the temple and continue teaching. Mm-hmm. And it's not generally given to many teachers. 
So I don't know if it's a little different, so I can't hear it. Yeah. Um, I think it's given much more broad than Japan. Than Korea. And Korea is also, if on the first one, where you have reached the stage, you have to go in Korea to see many people. And if they all agree that you have reached a certain level, then at that level, you can proceed maybe to call yourself a very master or something. Oh, but more strict than in Japan. Much more. Generally, mm. you won't find many Zen teachers or masters over the, under the age of 60, 50, 60. So at 40, they may have had some recognition, but it's kept quiet. And then they go and practice for 10 years. <laughs> and then it comes out after, it matures after 10 years and they come back. <laughs> yes. So there are a whole series of Buddhist Oh, yes, many. <laughs> this is called Theravadan, which means the teaching of the elders. Uh, Thera are the elders and Vadan is the teaching. And it is uh, based on what is known the Pali Canon. And the Pali Canon means that it's written in the Pali language, which well, did not have an alphabet. So the alphabet is, that is used is the Sinhalese alphabet. And um, it was the, they were the original words of the Buddha, this Buddha, that we are uh, still uh, getting the instructions from, or having the instructions from, uh, who lived approximately 2,500 years ago. And the first, the teaching was orally transmitted. I mentioned that already once. And then it was written down at the Third Council of Arahants, which was about 250 years, a little more than that, after his death. And as that was written down at the time, it was then, so to say, canonized, which means nothing was to be added or taken away afterwards. But we do have enormous um, array of commentaries, which are also helpful and useful. But the um, actual writing down was um, the uh, suttas, the discourses, of which there are about 17,500. And uh, the uh, Vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns, and also at that time was written down the Abhidhamma, which is a sort of um, um, philosophical explanation of the whole of the teaching, which is um, probably, well, most likely, done was done at that council of Arahants and not by the Buddha. But by the Buddha are the suttas and uh, the Vinaya, the rules. And the suttas, of course, some of them are older than others. And again, in 250 years, there have been some, probably some um, things that were forgotten and some things that might have been added. That's also possible. And scholars are constantly trying to figure out which it was, which was added. Uh, but as a whole, we have a complete body of teaching, which in you can find that one single person must have said it because it all has the same style. It's always style is the same, and the same people are mentioned. So this is called Theravadan, and it bases itself on the original teaching of the Buddha. You can see the fundamentalists, and the countries Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka are now the countries where this is a state religion. And then. Um, the other aspect of Buddhism is called Mahayana, and that includes Zen and Tibetan as their main features. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
come again. Was the Buddha the same Buddha? Yes. Yes. The same Buddha. Sometimes you wouldn't know it, but it is the same Buddha. <laughs> no. There have been other Buddhas before him and there will be other Buddhas after him. But this one Buddha is the same Buddha from whom the original teaching comes. But you have to remember that when I said that sometimes you wouldn't know it, the fact remains that the teaching becomes culturally imbued. Whatever country it goes to, the culture makes a great impact on the teaching. And with that, we find that then over hundreds of years there's no distinction anymore between what is culture and what is the Buddha's teaching and it all comes together as the teaching. So therefore you will find things in some countries which are quite foreign to another one. And of course so far we haven't got any Australian Buddhism because it hasn't been here long enough. But it is the, it is the prerogative and I think a great uh, um, possibility for, for this country that there are Western monks and nuns who can bring to this country the teaching in its purity without the cultural accretions so that it can become part of the culture also. Well, certainly not in Pali. You have to learn the language first. Um, which it's all translated into English, yes. Um, if you want to read the words of the Buddha, the, um, there is a whole Pali canon available from the Pali Text Society. It's very expensive. And also, it's, some of it has been translated a long time ago, and the English is um, um, archaic. The best thing to do is to get the real publications from the BPS, which is the Buddhist Publication Society in Kandy, Sri Lanka. They are very inexpensive. They have been excellently well translated, and they have the commentaries by some of the experts, Venerable Nanaponika, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, and others. And there is in the office, as far as I know, uh, there are some of the catalogs of the BPS. They're blue in color and they're about this big and it says BPS on it and you will find many many different titles there and you will not always know which one is the Sutta but sometimes you will know. <laughs> and that's, uh, they are very inexpensive and they're the best possible thing to get. Mm -hmm. uh, some are there, yes. Yes. And in the, in the wheel booklet you will find if it is a sutta, it will have the sutta itself, the discourse itself, in English first. And it will say what the name of it is and where it comes from. And then further on in the little booklet, there are only little booklets, uh, some com uh, comments on it. So we will, by that you can tell whether it's really a discourse by the Buddha, because it will say this is that it has a name and where it comes from, and then the translation first. So it's uh, the, this, how, this is how I started to learn all my Dhamma, out of the real book. <laughs> but I set up nights learning it by heart. <laughs> well, that's some time ago. Yes.
Uh, no, not at all. Um, in the time of the Buddha, um, monks, nuns, yes, monks and nuns. But not today, no. Uh, there are numerous lay people that are teaching, and um, uh, particularly in America, many, uh, and, and also in other countries. No, not always by monks and nuns. The only thing that uh, one has an advantage as a monk or a nun is that you have very little other things to do. At least that's what's the way it should be. And as you have little other things to do because they're done, these other things are done, you know, on a level of uh, support system, uh, you can spend your time learning more about the Buddhist teaching, practicing more about it, and uh, being able to have this Dhamma language at heart all the time. That's a great advantage of it.